Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap at the end of one of the most frenetic and interesting weeks we've had in a good long while. I'm joined as usual by my great friend, Lance Roberts. Can't wait to hear his insights about uh, everything that went down this week. How you doing, Lance? Uh, it's just been an interesting week. Um, between midterms, the Fed, everything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this today. Okay, yeah. So we have like a number of multiple big shoes that dropped this week that would be the, the the main theme in any week in and of themselves but we're going to have to try to squeeze a lot of commentary into our regular you know way too long uh video here like as we normally do um let's let's start if we can with yesterday's uh just monster rally right well i i think Yes, we can do okay. that. I think you, I think you actually have to back up. There, there's so many things that happened this week that led up to that monster rally. You know, you've almost got to go back to Tuesday with the midterm elections, which set the stage for you know kind of what happened on Thursday and Friday. Okay, go for it. Set away. Well, I, yeah, I just you know, but yeah, let's let's talk about the monster rally yesterday. So we'll we'll start there because everybody wants to know. Is the bottom man? That's that's right. really the question, right? And just just for folks that have been sleeping under a rock, uh, S and P was up over five and a half percent, Nasdaq up almost seven and a half percent. I mean, these are the biggest one day percentage gains that we've seen almost ever. I mean, I, I, I know it's not the biggest day, but it's close. Yeah, actually, uh, if you I don't know if you saw my tweet my Twitter account today, but I actually posted a series of nine charts uh, that go back to 1960. And I marked out in that in each one of those charts, I broke them down into periods. Um, there were 23 periods in the S&P, including yesterday, where their market was up over 5%. Interestingly, the majority of those moves occurred in, in bear markets. In a bear market, yeah. And, and, now, and, and now you got to be careful with this, though, because now everybody goes, well, see, it's just a rally in a bear market. Yes, but. Interestingly enough, these 5% moves occur towards the end of the bear markets. Now, doesn't mean that we're at the end of the bear market, but they occurred in the latter stages. With the exception of 2001, there was one 5% move early in that the dot-com crash. There was another one at the end of the dot-com crash. Okay, but and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify, yeah. uh, when you say they're, they're later in the duration of the bear market, is that from a timing standpoint or from a drop standpoint? So, yeah. So like in this chart, you know, in the charts that you're showing here, you know, you'll see that a lot of times where these 5% moves occurred, they were near a bottom. The market had a nice reflexive bear market rally and then retested or even potentially set new lows. But we were at the latter stages of the decline of the market. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there right now still talking about, hey, there's still another 30, 40, 50% to go, you know, on the downside in this market. And, and there's there's certainly some reasons to expect there's further downside risk because the Fed is hiking rates. We've talked about the lag effect of rates. We've talked about tightening monetary policy. We've talked about all these types of things. And that's very true. You know, the, the, we, we haven't had the recession yet. Um, the Atlanta Fed, um, I don't know if you've checked their chart recently. But just the other day, the Atlanta Fed updated their, their GDP analysis for the fourth quarter. Now, remember they, that we just picked off 2.6% of economic growth in quarter three. 
Um, the Atlanta Fed always starts high and then they ratchet down their, their growth rates, right? That's all, always happens. So they work on real-time data. Interestingly enough, they started out at 3% for the fourth quarter. They're now at 4% for the fourth quarter. So they've actually ratcheted up economic expectations for the fourth, or fourth quarter. And we're about halfway through November. So, you know, doesn't mean that's not going to come down here, you know, over the next month as we get retail sales for November and December and these other things. So we'll likely see that number come down. But my point is, is that economic growth, and, and you and I discussed this, we said, you know, the first two quarters this year was not a recession. There were some anomalies that were going on with that. We're going to have positive growth in third and fourth quarter. The recession's still probably coming next year. Now, could we avoid a recession? I, you know, I always get emails from people, mm-hmm. Twitter comments saying, well, it's possible this time is different. Yes, it's very possible. There, there are possibilities and there are probabilities. As investors, we have to invest on the probabilities, but that doesn't mean that possibilities cannot occur. Um, it is possible that we could avoid a recession next year. Absolutely, you cannot discount that. I mean, the Fed could immediately reverse course and start doing QE, drop rates to zero, and we could avoid, you know, we could have no, more stimulus checks come through, right? You know, whatever. So there's always a possibility. Probabilities, if you take a look at what's how is it happening with the housing market, with interest rates, with consumer debt, with consumer spending, et cetera, uh, particularly savings rates for individuals, the probability is, is we'll have a recession next year. Earnings haven't likely priced that in fully yet. So we're, we're going to see a contraction in earnings, see a contraction in markets and mar- uh, sorry, corporate profit margins, um, which will mean that prices will have to adjust lower. But, you know, those are all things that we'll have to deal with when we get into next year. And a lot of things can potentially change. Right. So we just have to be aware of that. But for right now, um, you know, this rally that we saw on Thursday and and really on Friday, too, because we got to carry through on Friday. um, Friday's action was interesting uh, as a follow up, because what's rallying is the most hated, most shorted, fundamentally broken stocks. (laughs) <laughs> in a lot of cases, right? Uh, you know, our favorite uh, ETF to pick on, ARC, was up 8% Arc. Friday, right? right? So, so Kathy's had a great week. She's, she's loving what she has stopped drinking for an entire week. So uh, <laughs> she has finally got a little bit of a reprieve. Um, but interestingly, on Friday, healthcare stocks got completely hammered, right? United Healthcare, CVS, all these healthcare providers were down sharply on Friday. Because of this idea, and this was really what drove the rotation, we talked about this before, Adam, we said that when we get this first deflationary tinge uh, in the economy, that money was going to run into growth stocks, right? And, and uh, the, you know, and I just wrote an article last week, you know, questioning this idea that FANG stocks are dead. Why are you you pointing your finger at me? Uh, Well, one, because we talked about that one. I think I talked about that with Michael Leibowitz when you weren't here two weeks ago. Um, But I thought you were going to reference the one that I already have on my list for a little bit later, which is the policy pivot may not be bullish. So I just want to let you know that that is coming. (laughs) We're going to get there. Um, But so we saw this deflationary rotation. So what you saw on Friday was money coming out of those safety plays. Um, and going into the growth stocks. Um, every week in our newsletter, um, we post this really interesting chart. I think it's interesting because I built it. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a table that shows the risk-reward ranges for sectors and markets. And what it tells you, it resets at the first of every month, and it looks at every sector and market, you know, kind of the broad majors. And 
and, and looks at the his, history of these and how they trade within a given month. So in any given month, a sector or market will move um, you know, a certain percentage based on their previous volatility. So don't worry about all the technical mumbo jumbo. It just, it just measures when things have moved too far too quickly in a given month. But we also measure the deviation from short and long-term moving averages. And I'd written last week that technology, discretionary communications had gotten so deviated, they were, they were double-digit deviations below long-term means. And those can't last for very long. It's just it's, it's stretching rubber band as far as you can in one direction. And they're going to snap back. And this week, with this inflation print, well, I guess we're going to talk about the inflation numbers, um, we saw a very rapid rotation out of those safety plays back into those extremely beaten up areas. Now, again, this is a massive short covering rally. It will likely fail at some point here. I'm not saying we're not we're back into a bull market yet. The bottom that you know we just had is probably not the bottom. We're probably going to at least retest this bottom at some point, um, if not set new lows. But this could be a fairly healthy rally. You know, I've talked about this rally could run to 30, you know, 39, 4,000, 4,100. That is a very realistic possibility right now because of this move over the last two days. Yeah. And, and I do want to give you credit, too, in our monthly Ask Anything Q&A that we had whenever that was, what, about 10 days ago or so. Okay. Um, you made the case. You didn't say, hey, I'm not guaranteeing this is going to happen. But but you were saying things are shaping up where you one can make the argument that we would see, you know, a rally arise back into the the end of this year, right? And 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 perhaps maybe that's what we're starting to see here. But I wanted to give you credit for at least telling people, hey, folks, this could happen. Uh, and then, of course, we saw uh, what happened this week. Just to dig into one thing you said. Um, so you called this a, a massive short covering rally, which I think many people, you know, are, are saying right now. Um, I just want to explain that for the average viewer here for a second, um, because what's happening right now in terms of these massive jumps that we've seen in, in, in stock prices over the past and bond prices over the past uh, 48 hours. Um, yes, part of that is capital coming into the market and saying, hey, I think some of these guys have been beaten down so much. It's time to jump in, especially given the inflation print, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but a, a substantial part of it is force buying that people who were short and basically betting the market was going to continue to go down further with the surge in these prices they're now actually having to cover their shorts so that they don't basically just get you know bled into insolvency here and so yes there's a good chunk of money entering these stocks right now not because it thinks they're great buys it's because it's kind of gun to the head they've got to close their shorts out right no and that's absolutely the case and, and unfortunately because you know, we're now in a market that's driven so much by algorithms and, and by, you know, machine machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, you know, when stock and, and we wrote this a couple of years ago, um, actually talking about the risk in the market that was coming. And, and we said that uh, we wrote several times that when markets stop going up, these machines will stop, you know, buying dips and they'll start selling rallies. And that's exactly what we've seen happen this year. Every rally is met by the sellers. And, and again, this is part and parcel of, of these machines that are running this. So when stocks break certain support levels or whatever, all these, all these algorithms start shorting the markets, right? And so they, and then when these things reverse, those algorithms start buying stocks. And, and that's why we've had such a big increase in, in daily volatility this year. Something we also wrote about last year, we said, you know, be careful 
you know, last year was one of those years where we had very low levels of volatility. And we said, this is great. You know, the, the biggest dip we had in 2021 was a 5% decline and everybody was buying the dips. And this is, we were talking about this, you know, these machines that were just buying dips because that's what they're trained to do. But low volatility begets high volatility. And uh, that sounded like I've been drinking. Low volatility <laughs> begets high volatility. Uh, and, you know, that's what's happened this year is we've had a very big pickup in these volatility swings. And, and we've had more negative days this year than we've had since, like, I think 1974. And we've had numerous days where we were up or down, you know, 2% or more. Uh, so, you know, just... That, those type of moves you shouldn't see in a normal market. This is perhaps a, a rant for a different day. And we, we have talked, we have ranted a little bit in the past about um, these algorithmic tradings, uh, trading algorithms. Um, but I've heard it said, and, and sadly, I, I believe it to be true, which is, you know, if a giant asteroid came and slammed into the earth and, uh, you know, kicked up dust and created a, a winner that killed all human life, stocks would probably still be traded for a good time after that, right? The algorithms that were still around, there would be a stock market that was going up and down because of these yeah. algorithms, right? It's it, probably true until the power shut off. So Yeah, yeah, which which is crazy because it sort of just does beg the question, how, how, how much do people really matter in today's markets anymore, right? How much of the actual, you know, the, the price action is driven already just by these these algorithms, um, but that that that's a story for a different day. Yeah, it um, is. But but real quick though, this is this is part of the article about you know you know everybody's claiming that Fang stocks are dead, right? Um, that was the whole part of the article. Is there's so much money that's flowing into passive indexing now? People have just given up trying to pick stocks, and I, I can't blame them. It's it's hard, right? It's so much. We, we so we run two two portfolios in our shop. We run an equity model and an ETF model. The ETF model is so easy to run, you know, because it has very few changes. Basically, we just reweight positions, but you know, you just try to buy the sectors that are going up, avoid the ones that are going down, and underweight those, right? It's right. so all, easy. all you have to do is predict cash inflows and outflows to the general market, right? That, that exactly it. And and you know, trying to pick the individual stocks, and it's just like it's just you know, Friday's a really good example. Uh, you know, Thursday, we had an awesome day. Right. Thursday was an awesome day. We outperformed our benchmark by a, a huge amount, even though we've only got 40 percent equity. Right. But everything was everything was ginning to the upside. Um, just, you know, incredible day of just money flows into everything. But then on Friday, all of our healthcare stocks got hammered. Right. And it just happened to be the ones that we owned. <laughs> so, you know, um, but that put a, you know, while the rest of the portfolio performed fine, but that one sector drugged down our performance for the day uh, relative to what it should have been. But, you know, the ETF model, it, since it had just the sector of healthcare, which had other sectors like uh, diagnostic stocks were still doing fine in the healthcare sector, it actually outperformed. But, but again, this goes back to those passive indexing flows. So many people are just buying ETFs, which feed those top 10 or 20 stocks in the index. And, and that just really goes to that point. And, and again, what you saw over the last, you know, last couple of days in particular, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon had a huge move. Um, uh, AMD, NVIDIA, those were up, you know, 15, 20%. I mean, just those have had just massive moves just because that's where all the money's flowing into because everybody's buying ETFs. And, and this goes to the, uh, you know, uh, Bill Fleckenstein sort of giant mindless robot 
um, that we've talked about. Not enough time to go into that now, folks. Um, if you want to find out what that is, I'll put up a link here to the latest video we did with with Bill where we talked about this. Um, but uh, you and I have talked about this a ton, Lance. Yeah. Um, it, and it is interesting. Um, you know, it, is that the way the game is going to continue going yeah. forward? You know, it's in, it, it, I, I don't see anything that's going to necessarily change that, right? And of course, the risk is, is if the robot shifts into reverse and starts withdrawing capital from markets, then we really get pain in the markets going forward from here. But, you know, whatever happens in the next couple of months, a quarter or two, we'll sail through it. Are we in a permanent world now where passive investing just kind of drives everything? Yeah. I think so. And and I think this is I think this is a problem of the Fed. I think this is I think this is a monster the Fed created. Um, but I also think it's a function of of what we've done to markets over the last 20 years. You know, picking stocks is hard. I mean, it's if you gotta actually work at it, <laughs> you know, to pick stocks and manage money, you know, it takes time. But you know, we but just think about all the media. Right. I mean, the media is just, hey, buy an ETF. I mean, you've got Warren Buffett out there saying they're just buying an S&P index. Don't even worry about, it. you know, he's over here buying individual stocks and, and, and managing companies like you can't do this. This is this is what Warren Buffett is telling you. You're really too stupid to pick individual stocks just by an, an S&P index fund. That's the best you can kind of hope for and just kind of ride the markets. But we've just indoctrinated a whole generation of people that, you know, basically you just need to be average and, and buy an index. And, and this is this is this is really the story is to say, look, you're not smart enough to outperform the market from one year to the next. But, you know, you can just get average performance. If that's OK with you. You can just get average performance just by this ETF. And, and this is a, then we talked about how mutual funds were a great invention for Wall Street because it annuitized their business. They no longer had to day trade stocks to generate a commission to, to create their revenue stream. They once they created mutual funds, this was this was an annuitization of the money management business because basically you put your money in, I charge you a flat annual fee, and I get paid every year. And every year I increase assets, I get paid more money, and I don't have to worry about anything else. ETFs do exactly the same thing, and so this has been a massive media Wall Street push to get individual investors to stop picking individual stocks because there's no money in it, there's no commission anymore. Right? No money in it for Wall Street, yeah. No money in it for Wall Street, right? Um, so I can sell. That's why they sell the trades off to Citadel and others to, to right. pick up the order flow. But there's no real money in that. The trading stocks is a loss leader. Much rather have you invest in ETFs or mutual funds because that's how I make it a new fee. Okay, so folks, Lance and I are. So it's not going to change. Yeah, we're describing a, a broken system here. We've talked about it a bit in the past. I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit in the future. But Lance, I got to bring you back because we've got so many more Sorry. things to talk about here. We haven't even Sorry. yet gotten to the CPI print. So uh, let me quickly set the stage and then wind you up because I'm sure that was a big spark of what transpired uh, over the past 48 hours here in terms of this massive surge. So uh, we got the October uh, consumer price uh, index uh, numbers out. They came in at 7.7%, which a few folks on Twitter were kind of remind me is still awfully hot inflation. It is. <laughs> uh, but expectations on the street were for 7.9%. So it was a surprisingly weak print from Wall Street's perspective. Um, that obviously you know, gave a green light to what happened, Lance. And maybe you can explain that for folks because people, you know, some people are like, well, that still sounds like a really high number. But the important element here is that CPI is beginning to come down, which you and I have been predicting forever. And it looks like, I think we missed it by a month, but it looks like CPI indeed uh, did peak back in June. 
yeah. we're now here, you know, getting the the October numbers. Um, and uh, yeah, I think Wall Street's looking ahead and saying, okay, so Fed is beginning to to bring inflation down. Probably a lot of you know differences of opinion in terms of how quickly that's going to happen, but it's already looking forward to the day where the Fed can at least pause, right? Which is okay. We're beginning to see the end of the story here. Well, look, we were already starting to see the end of the story anyway. The Fed at the last meeting said, you know, they laid this, the, they they basically laid out the parameters to to only do a fifty basis point hike in December, only do twenty five basis point hikes at the first two meeting in uh, first two meetings in twenty twenty three. They're done at that point. So after, you know, after the 75 basis point rate hike in November, there's only another 1% that they're going to hike rates. And, and I don't see them really backing off of that anytime soon. Um, four tenths of 1% increase in headline inflation. That's 4.8% annualized. So just, you know, th that is not low rates of inflation by any stretch of the imagination. That is not going to pull the Fed off of hiking rates. And, you know, this is kind of the point of the article that you just flashed up a minute ago, which is the bulls may not like the Fed pivot. Um, you know, the Fed's still going to hike rates. And there's in a 50 basis point hike, no matter how you want to slice that carrot, it is still an aggressive move, right? So it's just not 75 basis points. But, you know, what Wall Street took away from this is that, you know, you had inflation come down, um, you had it come down in every sector except recreation. Um, mark that up to Halloween. Um, but we saw the first crack, and you and I have talked about this uh, numerous times, is that the one thing that was keeping inflation elevated was the, the homeowner's equivalent rent. And that runs about a three to four month lag. And, and because of the way house prices and rents come through the system, yep. um, it was going to take a while, but eventually that would, that would show up. And it showed up at this meeting. This or, or this this report, we actually saw homeowners equivalent rent come down for the first time, and that's going to continue now because um, you look at the national rent rent index; it's been coming down very sharply. House prices are coming down very sharply. All that's going to feed through into the next couple of months. And again, with inflation, with the almost forty percent of the inflation index homeowners equivalent rent, as that number comes down, it's going to pull the whole index down with it. So. You know, that's uh, so inflation has definitely peaked. We're going to start seeing that more disinflationary trend. And that's why you saw money running back into growth stocks, which which technically do better in a disinflationary environment because they have stronger earnings growth. OK, great. And that's where I was going with this, which is I think we feel pretty comfortable now. We being you and me saying, OK, folks, the inflationary phase is over. We are now in deflationary phase. I, I'd actually argue we were we were first in an inflationary phase. We've been in a stagflationary phase. Yeah. And now I think disinflation is taking over here. Yeah. And, and again, you're about, and, and what, so the, and this goes back to the other statement I made a minute ago about next year. You know, what's interesting is we talked about this previously is that everybody's predicting a recession next year. And that's very unusual because normally nobody predicts a recession, but now everybody's like, yeah, we're have a recession next year. And it's pretty clear we're going to have one. The, the one thing we haven't seen yet, but it's coming, and we saw jobless claims tick up on Thursday. Um, the unemployment, you know, stagflation has, has been kind of the measure because we've had very strong unemployment. There is a real possibility we're about to see unemployment start to pick up fairly sharply as we move into next year. I mean, we're already, you know, we talked about layoffs and all that coming, but that's likely going to continue. The one thing that's been supporting the employment 
you know, in the economy has been the industrial side of the economy, right? Because your supply chain disruptions and all that. Um, but as you have more and more demand destruction on consumers, and if you take a look at consumer credit growth, consumer credit growth has been slowing fairly sharply. That doesn't mean that consumers are just spending less on their credit card. It means that they're running out of credit. They've, you know, they, we have very sharp increases in consumer credit that's now starting to, to slow down because they are simply running out of credit, which means the next phase of this is going to be slower rates of consumption and retail sales uh, for Christmas could really be the first telltale sign of a much weaker economy next year. Yeah, I'm already beginning to see the articles that consumers are planning on spending less this year, right? Um, you know, the whatever the staycation version of, of Christmas spending is. Um, and you talk about something really interesting. I, I want to give um, props to uh, one of the analysts that I, I follow an awful lot, um, I respect highly, a guy named Charles Hugh Smith. Um, and when I first started reading Charles, this was like back in like 2006, um, he talked about debt fatigue, a concept called debt, uh, no, not debt fatigue, I'm sorry, debt saturation, Yes. Um, which was basically, you know, household balance sheets, really any balance sheet, but, but in the case of what you're talking about, household balance sheets can only absorb so much debt. Right at some point, they can't take on any more debt because that then impairs their ability to either service the debts they've already had or just pay their bills. Um, or sometimes, even if they want to take on more debt, the creditors are saying, "No, you're done. <laughs> you're yeah, you're no, maxed that, that, out." Yeah, that's. I was about to say that is that there's really what debt saturation is. It's not. It is partly you're correct. It is partly an unwillingness to go take out more debt. But consumers are pretty bad about their financial, and they'll just keep taking on debt. Right? right. I mean, they'll do that. It's really a function of the bank saying, you're done. We're not right. going to issue another credit card. And so the point is, is, is to, your, to your point, we may be reaching that point here, right? Where a material enough of, of the, the households just can't borrow anymore. They just literally can't get to do so. Uh, and when we talk about um, the importance of consumer spending, because it's two thirds of, of the economy, um, you know, when, when they're cut off at the bar, Right from borrowing anymore. That's really where you begin to see the hits in consumer spending. Right, it's it, it's a it's a forced austerity because the lenders are just telling these guys, "No more. We ain't serving you anymore." And and by the way, that the, the reason that's important is not only is that recessionary, it's also deflationary. Because again, as we talked about before, what's the reason why the Fed is hiking rates? It's to slow economic growth. How do you slow economic growth? Well, if two thirds of the economy is consumption, that's where it goes. Right. I mean, that the whole point is to make the cost of debt too expensive so people will spend less. And, and that's going to work and it's already working now. And unfortunately, you know, when we look back at the rate hikes that have been passed through, we've got the 25 basis point hike. We can say that that one's in the economy now, but the 50 and the 475s and the 50 coming up and the 225s after that, those aren't in the economy yet. That's still got to come in and we won't see that until next year. Right. And, and your, your points are a good one, too, which is, you know, one of the primary mechanisms the Fed is using here is, is I'm going to increase the cost of debt um, because that's going to it's going to weigh the consumer household that's leveraged down further and impair its ability to borrow more. Right. And so we are seeing consumer debt, you know, explode in terms of the cost of the debt. Right. So we've talked a lot about mortgages. Right. How now mortgages are a lot more expensive. Um you know, most people who have one have a fixed mortgage. Um, those that have variable mortgages are totally in trouble. Uh, but those that are trying to take out one now, obviously, it's a massive jump from what was the price was just six months ago. 
Um, but uh, if you look at uh, average credit card uh, interest charged right now, I think it's now over 19%. I think it's at an all-time high. Yeah. And again, that's where most people, but remember, like, you know, so I run an inflation chart um, and it shows regular inflation CPI and it shows core CPI, which, by the way, core CPI really came down a little bit, but not a whole lot. Right. So it's still it's still peaking. Um, but core inflation hasn't really come down a lot. But, you know, I run an inflation measure and I strip out housing and healthcare costs. Um, and the reason I do that is, is that for most people, um, you know, their rent is fixed and healthcare is fixed and, you know, for a certain period, because, you know, with our company, we, you know, we up for, you know, new healthcare once a year, we have to, you know, we sign up for our healthcare and then we pay whatever the premium is and it's locked in until the next year. Uh, rent is the same way. Like I've got, you know, I'm renting a house right now. So my rent is set for two years. So regardless of what happens in homeowners equivalent rent, I probably overpaid for rent now. <laughs> I may want to renegotiate but rent's going to come down, but my rent's not going to change. So when you strip out rent and healthcare, which are fixed for most people, actually the day-to-day living inflation actually came, has been coming down pretty sharply for the last three, four months. So you're starting to see those the deflationary impacts, but it's still, you know, running over eight, eight, almost 9% for the average household. And that's just something that with wages not keeping up with inflation, that nine percent, eight eight and a half to nine percent increase, even though it's down from eleven, by the way, um, is still exorbitantly high. I mean, food costs, those type of things, you know, you know, gasoline costs at the gas station, those type of things, that just eats into all that discretionary income. It just doesn't leave them a lot to work with. Well, it's very true, and it also eats into savings. So those that had savings left in the tank, you know, more and more, that tank's now running in, empty, right? And you have the whole. Hemingway way of going broke, right? Uh, happens gradually, and then uh, all of a sudden, all at once, right? So we just see more and more people hitting that all at once level yeah. and dropping out, you know, right? You know, it's, it's interesting. I got to a little bit of a debate today with the guy over at Daily Shot. Um, you know, he posts a series of graphs every day, and he posted this chart showing disability claims have really been going up since the 2020 lows. And I'm like, be careful with it. And, and so the 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 tag on it was long COVID, that right. because of COVID, everybody's having to file for disability. That's not really the case. Because if you go back and look post-financial crisis, right? Now, the data for disability claims only goes back to 2008. So there's not a lot of history to it. But what you see is, is that right after the financial crisis, now think about what happened, right? People lost their jobs. They lost their houses. They lost their income. They lost their savings. They lost you know, their investments, I mean, everything, right? So a lot of people were at ground zero in 2008. All of a sudden, there was a massive surge in disability claims. Now, did people all of a sudden get physically damaged during the 2008 financial crisis? Or is it the fact that it's really easy to claim disability on my back? I threw my back out. I got disability, you know, right? I go get a doctor that's friendly to me. He writes a script, says, yeah, I got, you know, you're disabled, you can't work, because it's, it's just a function of not being able to meet a couple of, uh, of the, yeah. right? It, it just, just to interject for one second, let me keep going. Right. There were some excellent exposés done coming out of the, the global financial crisis about exactly this. And, yeah. you know, there, there, were, there were sort of two things going on. There were all the people that you just mentioned who were saying, all right, I got to need, I got to find some way to, you know, help support my family. I'm going to try to go on disability. So massive demand of people trying to get on the lists, um, exacerbated by uh, some doctors 
who were kind of willing to, you know, bend the rules. And, and a ton of these disability claims were being written by a very small number of doctors, they found exactly. out, right? They're basically yeah. selling selling scripts. Yeah. Um, but but a big part of it was policy, where you had a lot of public policy people who said, look, we have a lot of disaffected people here in our county or whatever their, their territory was, and I can't get them on, you know, they've fallen off the regular, you know, welfare or whatever, um, or their, their jobless benefits have run out or whatever. What can I do for them? Oh, we can, we can bend the rules here and get them on disability. So you had this massive explosion in disability. Yeah. And, and, and the point is, is that it's fairly easy money to go get. You know what else exploded right after the financial crisis? Because it's fairly easy money to get that you don't have to really make, you know, a specific claim on use. Student loan debt. A lot of people took yep. out student loans just to make ends meet. And, and again, you know, there's nothing. Look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong or nefarious or this. But look, when consumers, my point is that when consumers get in trouble, I can't get a credit. And the problem is, is for a lot of these people, they're running delinquent on their credit cards. That's why they can't get another credit card. Banks are generally right. pretty good. If you're current on a credit card, they'll like, oh, yeah, Adam's still paying his here. Give him another credit card. But as soon as you start running delinquent, that's where you start getting cut off of credit. So, you know, consumers are very creative and there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, there's a, there's a whole social welfare system out there that, you know, you make the right, you fill out the right paperwork, you know, and make the right claims. You know, there's we, there's been plenty of studies out where, you know, people get $60,000 a year from the government from all the various entitlements. And this is why we have, you know, continuing rises in social welfare and social entitlements relative to disposable incomes. Um, because, you know, we, we provide these very generous programs that are not that difficult to gain. Um, and when consumers with their back against the wall, got to support, I got two kids to feed, you know, got a dog, you know, got rent to pay. Consumers right. can get very creative and, and work in the system. And there's not, and again, I'm not making, I'm not saying. And I'm glad you aren't too, right? I mean, look, yeah. when, when it comes down to putting food in your kids' mouths, you'll, you'll do, whatever do anything, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. But, but the point is, the, the point of that though is, is that's very deflationary, right? Recycling tax dollars does not create economic growth. And, and, and when you start seeing these type of things where, disability claims just start taking off. That tells you that the consumer's in a lot more trouble than what a lot of the headline media tells you. Got and it. that's, Great that's point. the point of the story. Okay. All right. Uh, did, but, yeah. uh, my, my head is hurting here because we haven't even gotten to the elections yet. <laughs> so it's, it's like we keep Let's trying to find because this mountain. That's going to be part of getting this. even higher. Yeah. Um, all right. So so clearly everything that we've just sort of talked about here, Lance, um, was a lot of kindling for what happened over the past couple of days. Now we throw the election uh, into the story. And of course, we're still waiting for the final uh, results to come in super tight election uh, in, in certain cases, um, you know, coming down to Senate control. Um, we may have to wait, you know, for a, a Georgia runoff uh, to determine that. So it might be a full month before we actually know where the Senate's going to tilt. Um, it seems pretty, pretty probable at this time, though, that the House is going Republican. So I think it's relatively safe to assume divided Congress going forward. Got to assume the market liked that um, in the sense that, OK, you know, Market loves, market hates uncertainty. And one of the things that gridlock, a gridlock Congress does is, or a divided Congress does, is give it certainty that there's greater certainty that there's likely to be gridlock and little is going to change. And at the end of the day, Wall Street just wants to know that the rules. And if they're like, okay, if the rules aren't going to change very much for the next two years, we're cool with that. We can work around that, right? 
So I assume that that's what happened, but let me know if you have a different interpretation. No, I, I think that's right. I think we're going to wind up with the Senate pretty much the way it was, 50-50 um, with Kamala Harris being the, the one deciding vote. Um, however, I think there's an interesting backstory to what may happen with the Senate. Um, if the Republicans gain control of the House, which again, to your point, looks like that'll be the case, they are one, you know, what conservatives will, you know, potentially do is try to open up oil and gas production and try to get, you know, uh, some of the try to roll back some of the more aggressive green policy policy energies that green energy policies, sorry, uh, that kind of got us into a little bit of this this bind on energy prices in particular. Um, where this may actually kind of backfire on the Democrats a bit is when it comes down to Joe Manchin. Um, and West Virginia and the coal mining, because he's already shown that he'll vote with conservatives. He's the one, him and uh, Kristen Cinema. Cinema, yeah. Yeah, were the two senators that were willing to vote with conservatives on some policies that benefited their states. And so while, you know, there's, you know, Wall Street may be saying, hey, I love this idea of a, of a split Congress. The one thing that might come out of the Senate on on certain policies, particularly if they're more towards the, you know, kind of the production, economic, oil and gas side of the business, the energy uh, security business of, of the country, those those policies, if the, if the Republicans are smart and they haven't shown that they are, but if they're smart, what they'll do is they'll say, look, let's pass an energy security policy and all it is, it's going to open up you know, it's going to get get, you know, get leases available for oil and gas companies to, to drill. It's going to open up certain areas to drill. It's going to be very specific. It's not going to have anything else thrown into it. And, and that, that, you know, we're going to open up coal mining, whatever it is, but it's going to be very energy specific. That will likely pass because they'll probably get the one or two votes they need out of the Senate to actually get that policy to pass. Now, anything else outside of that, who knows, right? It's just that's that's gonna be, uh, but that that's where we go back to the gridlock. Uh, the good side about all this is, of course, to your point, is that we're we're not gonna have you know um, higher taxes. Uh, probably no tax policy will get passed. We have a debt ceiling coming up in yeah. February. That's that's a real problem for the Treasury. One of the big problems for the Treasury. We wrote an article about this recently about the lack of uh, Treasury liquidity. Um, and that's really going to be the Fed's next crisis, because without the Fed being a willing buyer of bonds, the Treasury's having real difficulty getting debt sold because banks are going, why do I want to buy the debt? Because I don't have a buyer to sell it to. I'm actually going to have to try to sell it to consumers. And that's, right. that's not fun. Um, that's too much work. <laughs> so, you know, um, but coming up, we've got that debt ceiling. Now, what will happen is they'll just do a continuing resolution. It's what they call a CR. And they'll just kick the can down the road. For another day because we haven't had a budget since 2008 so i wouldn't expect that to change anytime soon we'll just let yeah. the debt feeling at this point just keep going but you know as far as higher tax rates or big changes to health care or anything like that i think a lot of that's dead yeah okay um so real quick do you think on the energy side of things uh do you ex do you expect the energy sector to do better post-election now because of this um well, a lot, but two things you're going to be able to depend on the energy sector, right? So the, the answer is yes, it should, because you still have a supply shortage. You're going to have to refill the SPR now. Um, mm -hmm. You're at the lowest level. Uh, the last time I checked, I think it was the lowest level since like 1983 um, in the SPR. 
So you got to refill that. So that's going to take supply out of the system to refill the SPR. And that's just that's just oil that goes into a hole, right? So, I mean, nobody gets to use that or benefit from it, just goes into a hole. Um, but that's going to reduce supply available. That'll help. That's going to help lift oil prices. You, you still have the problem going on between Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, um, which is crimping oil supplies and production. Uh, OPEC has cut oil production. You know, so, so there's a lot of supply constraints that aren't going away. So one thing that we need to do is to try to balance the system is to you know, get leases open back up so that oil and gas companies can start to drill, increase that production. But again, what they've got to have is they've got to have clarity. And the problem with this administration is, is one day they're saying, I don't know why oil and gas companies aren't drilling more. There's nothing stopping them from drilling. In fact, they need to go out and drill and get oil prices down. And the next day they come around and say, you know, we're going to kill the oil industry. And so, you know, you know, what oil and gas companies need is they need some clarity for more than three months. You know, they, they need five years of clarity saying, look, oh, you know, right. one needs to get passed. It says for the next five or 10 years, this is what's available to you and nothing's going to change that until this provision sunsets in 2050 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason is, is that these are very capital intensive product uh, projects. And if I'm investing a lot of capital, I need time to get my money back on that capital. Right, yeah, they, they need to know if they stick their neck out that there's a business return in it for them, yeah. Exactly, and this particularly goes to the refining problem and yeah. why we can't and will not ever have another refinery built in the US even though we desperately need it. Yeah, I'd love to drill down more deeply in that in the future video, but we got so much wood to chop here, Lance. Um, and real quick, I'm going to add one more log in here first. Um, so give me your super quick answer. Uh, I know you're not a political analyst, but you did mention the debt ceiling. Um, because we now have a divided Congress, do you expect another sort of kabuki theater, you know, brinksmanship, let's threaten to shut the government down thing this time around over the debt ceiling just because? The Republicans can do that to Biden? It's very possible. Um, again, it'll be kabuki theater at the end of the day. Um, they'll do a CR to pass it. You know, there's there's bigger fights for them to fight right now. The one thing they really want to try to do is go after, I and mean, I think it's, by the way, I think this is a terrible idea. Um, they've made very clear statements that what they will really want to do is go after, you know, a lot of the, the things on the Democratic side and start launching investigations and all this. And it's just a horrible idea. It's just going to divide the country that much more, yeah. um, make things more difficult on, on the whole process. Yeah. If, if I was Congress, if I was, the, if I was the majority whip in Congress, I'd say, guys, let's focus on the economy. What, what are the big reasons people went to the poll? They went to the poll because of inflation, economic growth, and, and the direction of the country. Let's focus on that. And let's start passing bills and things like that. Let's do a continuing resolution. We all know, let's all raise our hands and say we're all going to pass the CR because we already know we're going to do it. We're not going to pass a budget, um, so let's just do that now. But I tell you what, guys, next year let's let's actually pass a budget for a change. How that that'd be a good yeah. idea. I mean, so that, that would be great. It it, it uh, does seem that that is party number one of of whatever party is yeah controls Congress is relentless attacks on the incumbent, right? In, in a way that, that doesn't help and divide. It's, and it's just, it's just, it's just the worst possible thing. But so the, the point is, is they're going to do that. I think it's a terrible idea, but you know, uh, you know, they may very well try to do a debt ceiling, you know, fight. Um, we could turn out with another 2011 type situation where we had Barack Obama fighting the Congress on a debt ceiling, finally came to an agreement to have this non kind of this bipartisan committee 
but that let what that led to what they were supposed to do a trillion dollars worth of cuts and that wound up to being a big fat nothing but yep. the federal reserve launched a whole another qe program to try to avoid the debt the the financial cliff or the fiscal cliff sorry it was just all a disaster right so it just better at this point just pass the cr be done with it move on with bigger fights yeah yeah um, all right. Well, of course, while we would love to see some actual discipline, you know, have a debt ceiling actually matter and force, you know, a, 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 a reprioritization of spending. But that's just pipe dreaming at this point in time, I fear. Um, all right. So two big things that I also think contributed to the monster rally that we had yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to touch on briefly, because, again, these are things that we could talk the whole rest of the, the conversation about. But we've got some other big things to talk about, um, one being your policy pivot, two being the meltdown in crypto. <laughs> so we got some really big other topics to squeeze in here. But, um, uh, you know, yesterday we got the news that China was beginning to roll back some of its COVID restrictions. Um, and I think the world began taking that as a pivot. For, from China on on uh, you know on COVID and therefore the dreams of China reopening and we get a big burst of global demand out of this you know that was that was one big uh, contributor. The second was uh, Russia retreating. I, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, what the name of the, the city uh, or the area that they they retreated from, but it, it seemed to have been taken from the uh, by the market as okay this is a step towards some sort of negotiated uh, settlement here. Um, Russia's giving up some territory, retrenching in others, and maybe they're going to, you know, define the hard lines that they're eventually going to be able to agree to. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a Russia pivot. <laughs> yeah, it's a Russia pivot. And, and yeah. hey, look, I'm, I'm not a geopolitical analyst. I have no idea whether that's really improving the odds or not. But the market seemed to think so yesterday. So we had sort of three big things going on. The CPI uh, report being weaker than expected, the China COVID pivot, and the Russia pivot. Yeah. And that, look, that's and look, this market has been so beat up. People are so exhausted from the selling. Um, people are, are again, we had this huge short position in the markets. And, and again, just, you know, the market wanted to rally. It just needed a reason to rally and finally got, you know, every other every other month prior to this. Right. And inflation was always hotter than expected. You know, we tried to rally into the Fed meetings. And then Jerome Powell said, screw you, we're going to be, you know, we're even more aggressive now because you rallied the market. We rallied into inflation reports and those disappointed us. And so, you know, the markets were just wanting some piece of good news and finally got something that they could actually put some money to work on. And again, that caused short covering as well, which is added fuel to the fire. Yeah. And, and this is why these markets are so treacherous to, to, to invest in because, um, you get, as you said, we, we see most of the biggest rallies in history occur within bear markets, right? So sometimes it's just, it just needs a reason to throw a party for itself for a time being. Uh, but of course, the damage can be sucks everybody back in, and then the bear comes back and remalls everybody, right? And and I know, and we're going to get to your, your pivot thing in a second here, Lance. I know you were sort of saying earlier, um, hey, folks, we might be near the end of, of this bear market now. Um, we don't know for sure, but we may be just given what history has told us about these things. I do worry, though, that we, we we haven't hit the point of capitulation yet that we've heard from you and other experienced investors that typically when a bear market's over, nobody wants to touch a stock yet. Um, and, uh, and, and without that, you know, the danger is, is that we're not out of this thing yet. And so everybody's watching this monster rally and saying, finally, bottoms in, you know, disinflation and the tech trades back on and all this stuff. Right. 
not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying if it does happen, it's going yeah. to damage a lot of people right now. Yeah, it is. And, and look, you know, the thing is, is that we are seeing some capitulation. I mean, there's a lot of retail investors, particularly in the meme stocks that have given up now. They're just like, I'm done. Uh, I was reading just yesterday. We're logging X here in a few minutes, but, you know, they were just talking to investors saying, you know, I, I'm done. You know, I, I invested in these things. I trusted them and I'm done with it. I'm, I'm finished. So you, I think you're finally starting to get to the point of where, and, and just even talking to even, you know, prospects that, you know, they listen to your channel, they, they call me up, they want, they want advice. And, and so we talk to them and, you know, they're like, you know, I, I, you know, I want to do something, but I don't want to do anything right now. I'm just really scared of this market. And that's, yeah. that's the whole, that's what you expect, right? Nobody wants to buy stocks at the bottom. And, you know, I'm not saying we're at the bottom. Yeah. All I'm saying is, is that what when you have these big five, five and a half, six percent moves, it typically occurs in the latter stages of the bear market. Doesn't mean you should go out and buy everything hand over fist, but you know this is where you start building a shopping list and start thinking about things that have really gotten beaten up. There's a lot of companies that are down 60, 70, 80 percent from their peak that are trading at reasonably good valuation. Doesn't mean now is the time to buy them, but it's certainly things to keep a watch on. Great. Um, and just for a reminder of, of, of the reasons to still be of the bearish case right now, Lance and I have made many of these points over the past you know weeks, months, uh, but just released a, a video yesterday with Michael Pinto, um, who still, despite the massive rally, still thinks that there's a fair amount of reasons uh, for things to go lower here for many of the reasons you and I have talked about, Lance. So folks want to hear a current presentation of the bear case. Uh, I'll put up a link to Michael's uh, video right here so you can go watch that after this one. Um, all right, Lance. Um, so, uh, okay, well, let's let's talk about, um, you know, one of the things that 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 many people think could end this bear market, right, is a Fed pivot, right? And I think they're expecting a pivot, not a pause, right? Um, and last week when we talked, um, I know you're open to anything. That's your job, right? Is to to play the probabilities. Right. But I know personally, you're not super confident that Jerome Powell is going to be able to deliver on hiking all the way up to five, five and a quarter, and that you think something is going to break beforehand, and that he is actually going to do a pivot sooner than at least he is saying he is likely to do so. Um, but you have said, hey, folks, if we get a pivot. You know, the market seems to think right now, oh, then happy days. And all of a sudden stocks are off to the moon and it's all great. You're saying, hey, folks, take a beat on that because history shows that's not the case necessarily. Yeah. So the the case where the Fed says, OK, we're done hiking rates. And the market takes off running is an environment where you have no recession and immediately economic growth starts to go positive, right? You start to actually have fairly strong economic growth and rising earnings and everything's fine. And, and we're at this new higher level. So the Fed, you know, and already Fed fund futures are below 5% on kind of the terminal rate on Fed funds. But let's assume that he gets to 5%. Now, what the pivot is, what the pivot case is, is that we get to 5% and the Fed has said this. So said, we're going to get to 5% and we're going to, and they have it said specifically five, but they said, we're going to get to a rate. And when we get to that rate, we're going to hold it there for a while and let kind of figure out what all these rate hikes have done, right? We're going to try to, you know, we'll let the market catch up with us and we'll let the economy catch up with us because they know they're ahead, right? They know this lag effect exists. This isn't, you know, some hidden thing that only Adam and I know about. 
the lag effect is is real and they know about it. So they're say, what they're saying is, I'm going to get to this level. We're going to stay there. Now, the, the pivot case is Fed gets here, we hold, and the market takes off running because everything is fine in the markets. That's not the way a pivot works. The way a pivot works, historically anyway, and again, there's always a possibility that this time is different. But the reason that the Fed is now pausing is not a pivot. Right. A pivot, by definition, means you have turned around. So I'm going in one direction and I turn around, I go in the other direction. I've now pivoted, you know, in my movement, right? And that's what a pivot is. So what a pivot is, is the Fed saying, hey, we're now cutting rates and we're now going back to doing QE. We are now pivoting on our policy. Now, the only reason they would pivot on policy is because they are clearly aware that they have broken something. There is either a fairly deep recession coming or in tow, there is a credit issue that they're having to resolve because a bank is on the verge of potentially going bankrupt at some point because of some credit crisis, or there is just a complete dislocation in the markets and the overall financial environment that is going to create a deflationary, and this is the biggest threat to the Fed, deflation is a much bigger threat than inflation. Mm -hmm. The one thing that scares the bejeebers out of the Federal Reserve is deflation, because deflation is a psychological mindset. Once you start getting deflation, it's very hard to control it because what consumers do, and the reason you have deflation, is consumers say, I'm going to wait to purchase because things get, get, keep getting cheaper, right? That used car I wanted, it's cheaper this month than last month. I'm going to wait to see if it comes down a little bit more. So lack of demand, prices come down. So consumers say, you know what? I'm going to wait. Let's see if it comes down some more. House prices, all those type of things. That's deflation. And it's a psychological mindset that's very difficult. The Fed can't break that. They can, they can break inflation with higher interest rates. They can just make things so damn costly you can't afford it. So that kills inflation. Deflation is psychological and it's very hard to break. And that's the one thing the Fed that scares the Fed more than anything else occurring. And so, so when they start doing their policy pivot, they're afraid of either a big recession, a financial crisis, or some type of event in the, in the market environment that's creating a deflationary mindset that is very difficult to break. So that's, that's the thing you want to pay attention to. Okay. And I just want to put up here on the screen, the chart in your, your um, article here um, that shows that when the Fed cut interest rate, cuts interest rates, um, it is usually uh not the end of the bear market, um, uh, but but you know, you, you say here at the beginning, well, but, yeah. yeah. But but basically, yeah. basically, it, it, you know, and, and this this, you know, I, I don't want folks to feel like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth because you're not um, about hey, we could be near the end of the bear market because we saw yesterday's big spike, but you're saying hey, here's another data point on the other side of that that says hey, if the Fed is forced to pivot for um, many of the bad reasons that you just mentioned, um, that may not be the right time to go out and buy stocks. The markets yeah. may actually continue drifting down for a good while because of those negative uh, developments. And only, you know, once it's played out, things recover. And, and this is where I sort of wanted to go with all of this, Lance, is um, I, could, I could look at the stuff that we've talked about and I can make the case that, hey, the markets could have a stronger end of this year, right? We could get up to that 4,000, 4,100 on the S&P. And then we could have all the stuff that that 
leads to this Fed pivot come right after that. And, and it's a pretty miserable time in the world and the markets go back down again. And, you know, we get a lot of people that jump back in thinking everything was over and the bottom was in because we ended the year higher than we are right now who get decimated by what comes next. Right. But, okay. But, but here, let's put some things with that. Right. Because yep. it's, it's a good point. And so November, 2008 market had a 5% rally. Right. So as, as we were talking about a second ago, that was kind of the, the demarcation that we were getting closer to the end of the bear market. Now remember the bear market didn't end until February of 2009 and 22% right. lower in the first two months of the year. Right. So, but let's put some numbers with what you just talked about. Let's say the market rallies to about 4,100. And then this, this whole thing sets in, right? And the market declines 20% from wherever that is, right? So we'll be setting some new lows, but it's not going to be major new lows. But we're going to be down 20% from wherever we wherever this rally finishes up. So right. you know, the, the thing about these rallies are, and this happened back in June and, and uh, that, that June to August rally, the market was up 17%. Then we declined by 20% and wiped out all that gain. But we didn't really set much of new lows. And so the point, the, the point of my, my statement earlier is, is that, you know, these big 5% rally days tend to mark the, the, you tend to mark that you're getting closer to the end of the bear market. And so you're wanting, pe people are wanting to buy the rally. They're wanting to get into the markets. You're going to have another rally. You're going to wash everybody out. Now that might mean you, you wind up right back to where we started, could go a little bit lower. Um, but, you know, the, the odds of us going 50% lower has probably gotten mostly wrung out of the market now, unless, unless you have some real strong financial event. Now, if you have a credit crisis, you have some type of financial dislocation, all bets are off. Markets can go substantially lower. X that a normal economic recessionary environment, you know, we're probably with, if, if you mark the the kind of the the October the September lows as the most recent bottom, xing out anything other than just a normal recession, we're probably within ten to fifteen percent of the lows from that low, right? So ten to fifteen percent lower from that low, from that which low. would be which would be thirty percent basically from whatever peak we're going to set on this rally. That's the, so I just want to put perspective. You could be thirty percent down from this peak. Oh my God, I just lost thirty percent of my money, but only be fifteen percent lower than where we were. At the at the previous lows. At Makes the previous sense. lows of September. Got okay. it. Okay. Really, really well said. Um, okay. So moving on to a few some couple of other topics we we need to hit before we then get to how you are trading what's yeah. happened over the past week. Um uh you mentioned, you just mentioned Lance, uh, you know, provided there's no financial accident along the way, right? Yeah. And I just want to know there's, there's high odds of that, by the way. <laughs> Well, that's that's what I want to note here, right? And again, nobody knows what's going to happen. And 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 you know, in the perfect world, we'd love for everything to be great and everybody to make tons of money. Um, but the the risks that quote unquote nobody could see coming mm -hmm. have been coming fast and furious this year, and, and and coming even more so. So I'm just going to list a couple off here, right? Um, so uh, Facebook Meta, right? Um, they're they're laying off a bunch of people right now. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment um, about how that caught a lot of the employees by surprise. Um, but Facebook itself is down what? I mean, I, maybe it's up a little bit, not quite down this much based on yesterday's bounce. 
but um, you know, it's down about 70% last time I checked for the yeah. year, right? Nobody at Facebook, nobody in the investing community would have thought that Facebook would be down 70% 12 months later, right? Twitter, uh, hey, nobody would have expected that Elon Musk would buy it. Um, but nobody working at Twitter could have imagined a month ago a 50% reduction in force, right? Yeah. I mean, just a nuclear event at the company, right? Nobody, no, it was on nobody's bingo card, right? Um, if you if you looked at the housing market, just as recently as the spring, nobody could have imagined that we were seeing the rollovers in all the different markets that we're seeing right now, or that that mortgage rates could be at seven plus at this point, heading higher. Um, we talked a lot about the about a month ago when we had the um, the freeze up in the UK gilt market, right? Again, nobody in the UK thought that their bond market could freeze up like that overnight, the way that it did. Um, the war in Ukraine caught everybody by surprise, right? You know, I don't think anybody was really thinking that Russia was going to do something that dramatic. Um, and then the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, again, was something I don't think anybody thought could happen because it's such a mutually strategic uh, asset, right? So my point is, is there are just these, these things that, that we call them black swans, you want to call them whatever you call them, but they're just things that nobody imagined were going to happen that have material impacts have been happening more and more. I, didn't, I, I would consider an accelerating pace right now. And we just got another one of those this week where we had the implosion of FTT, uh, which owns FTX, which is the large, second largest uh, crypto exchange uh, in the world. Um, yes. Was, yeah. I mean, this, this, this thing went from fully functioning to a, a pile of rubble in 48 hours. Um, and what we don't know coming out of this yet is what the collateral damage from this is going to be. And, and as a matter of fact, Binance, the exchange that's the number one uh, crypto exchange in the world that was helping out uh, FTX or trying to help out, it, try, trying to come to FTX's rescue and then said, oh, my God, this thing's so nuclear. We don't want to touch it. Um, they're now saying like, hey, the shockwaves here, we, 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 we don't know what's going to happen. And they're even limiting withdrawals, which was what FTX had started to do, which got everybody, you know, worried in the first place. So, um, you know, one, I'm curious to hear your any thoughts you have about sort of the contagion effect that we might see here from the collapse of FTT. But but more importantly, like, I just feel like we, we, we have to be less confident than we've been in the past about where things could go, because we're seeing so many of these out of left field, you know, hand grenades that nobody knew were even being lobbed, right? Well, no, and so we talked about this before is that, you know, the thing that dislocates markets and the thing that, you know, causes, you know, a, a meltdown in stocks is something that is totally exogenous that nobody expects, right? And let's go back to 2008, good example, right? Markets, markets are declining. Uh, you know, we have Bear Stearns in March, March uh, then March, markets rally back to new highs in April, May, and June. Then they start to roll over and they start to decline. But it's, it's fairly orderly, much like we had this year. Just a fairly orderly kind of when you wake up for a week of bliss, you find out Lehman's filed bankruptcy and the market falls by, you know, by 30% in just days, right? It's just a, a massive drop off in the market. That's that exogenous event that nobody counted on that was a credit-related shutdown of activity. So when you think about the markets where we are today, you've got to say that despite the fact the markets are down 
well, after today, you know, 15% for the year. We're only down 15% for the year. And you've had all those events you just talked about, right? All those black swan events that that should, I mean, really any one of those events should have sent the markets down a whole lot more, but we're only down 15% for the year. And you, you, you've got to kind of go, man, the markets have done a yeoman's job here of holding this up. But the reason that markets have held up so well with these events is because they're not credit related, right? The war in the Ukraine doesn't affect the average mom and pop, right? I mean, it's just, they, they are aware of it, but it doesn't affect their livelihood. Um, you know, FTX, and we'll talk about that in a second, that's got some tentacles, right? That could actually show up and be problems. It's too new right now. We don't know how far those tentacles all reach, and we're going to find out. But the markets held up exceptionally well this year, in despite of all these black swan events, because primarily none of them have been credit related. None of them have been to the point where it's actually functionally broken the transaction base in the, in, in the financial markets. And that's the one thing where people go, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm going to get my money back tomorrow and I'm out. That's what causes these big meltdowns, right? War in Ukraine, those type of things, that, that's not the type of event you're looking for. What we're looking for here is something that craters a, a, a bank, a central bank, a, a domestic bank, something like that. You know, the dollar risk has been one of the big issues. Um, thankfully, we've had a big crackdown in the dollar. That's, that's helping alleviate some pressure. That's also another big reason for the rally. Uh, by the way, has been a very sharp drop off in the dollar. Right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was also yeah. on the list here, too. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, do you think um, any of that is engineered um, in the sense that I think we talked about this last time? Um, clearly, America has got to be getting pressure from its allies saying, dudes, this strong dollar is just killing <laughs> us, man. You've got to help us out here. Do, do yeah. you think some of this might actually be behind the scenes work to, to make it a little bit weaker? Yeah, you know, you know, we won't know for a while. Um, we'll find out eventually. Um, we'll find out if, if the Fed was doing dollar swaps or something like that. And, and it's very possible, right? Because, you know, we knew that they were doing some dollar, I had opened up some dollar swaps with Switzerland as, as an example. Um, you know, we, you know, with what's been going on in the UK and what's going on with Japan in particular, uh, the strong dollar was just, uh, like you said, just absolutely, I mean, you've got inflation, so think about this from a foreigner standpoint. I've got inflation and now everything I import from the U.S. is like 30% higher, right? So you're just magnifying your inflationary yeah. pressure on the economy. Total just, insult to injury, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just terrible. So, you know, I, it would not surprise me at all to find out that the Fed intervened and, and we did some currency manipulation on our side. Again, and that, again, you know, people go, you know, I can't believe China manipulates their currency. Everybody manipulates their currency because it's in the best interest to try to keep currencies somewhat pegged each other for, for trade, right? I mean, just that's how, they, how the world works. So, yes, we probably did something to manipulate our currency, but we won't know for a few months. But we'll find out. Okay. Um, before we head on our way towards trades, um, anything else you want to say about FTX implosion? And before we do, I just got to say, like, yeah. It is crazy. This guy, uh, Samuel uh, Blankman Fried, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce his name, um, but he was worth, uh, not that long ago, he was worth $32 billion. Yeah. I think coming into this week, he was still worth like 20, like over $20 billion. And he's now 
broke or, or definitely not a billionaire anymore <laughs> and probably on his way to being seriously broke at the lawsuits that I think this is going to generate happen. Well, uh, as of today, Bloomberg valued FTX at $1. So, so this, this is a life lesson. This is really two life lessons. And this is one thing I give Elon Musk credit for, right? Um, he was smart enough a while back. You remember right when Tesla was trading at, at its peak, he went and he sold like $11 billion worth of stock. And he, and he you know, said, I'm the largest taxpayer in history, right? Yeah. So, but he was smart enough to convert that, that paper wealth into actual wealth. And, and, and you know, the problem for Sam, Samuel Bankman Fried or Fried, however you pronounce it, um, is that he never converted that wealth, right? Yeah, he was on paper worth, you know, $24 billion, $36 billion, whatever it was. He's now effectively broken. If he winds up with 30 years in the federal pen, he'll be negative, negative worth. Right. Um, and now the, so a couple of things about this is one, you know, this, you know, the one thing about the cryptocurrency market, and you and I got into a discussion about this a while back on the show earlier in the year, and we got a lot of flack over my comments over cryptocurrency because I said, look, it's eventually going to be regulated. Um, you know, the whole idea of cryptocurrency was it's outside of government intervention, it's private, it's secure, nobody can mess with it. And of course, you know, it's just one fraud, one hack after another. And then you just have bad actors in the industry. And, and I'm not saying that Sam, that, 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 Samuel Bankman did anything wrong. He did. He may not have done it intentionally, but he created a Ponzi scheme uh, effectively. And, and this is what is about to, to toast him. The, the SEC is not only investigating the firm, they're investigating him personally um, on this. And, and that's not, if they file criminal charges, he could get up to 30 years in prison. Um, and and, and yeah. sorry to interrupt too, but you, you, you gave reference earlier to a um, there was a clip on the internet of him basically sort of explaining how cryptocurrencies work in a, in a podcast interview he gave. And it is really hard not to listen to that explanation as the podcast host mentioned several times that like, sounds like you're explaining a Ponzi scheme here. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, so and, and, and unfortunately it is because he was, he was taking, he was, he created a box, he put tokens in the box he then took the money out of the box and then gave it to his trading firm who was then investing in it. The other kind of more, you know, these were all teenage traders for the most part. I'm, and I use teenager loosely. Anybody under 30 is a teenager to me, right? So, but all these young guys that had never really been, have never seen a bear market, right? You know, they've all come up post bear market, 2008 financial crisis. They're all young and hip and cool and all that. But they've never seen how markets work. And they certainly don't understand how to manage and mitigate risk. And they were all investing in all these other cryptocurrencies and crypto technology and all this other stuff. And, you know, when it all fell apart, it just cratered everything because there was nothing to shield FTX and the client's money from these speculative asset trades that uh, Almeida was, was making. And so it just collapsed the whole bubble. And, and, and so now it's left investors with no recourse other than legal um, at this point. They'll never get their money back because it's gone. And, and what this is going to wind up is, and again, this is something that is, was, was going to come anyway, and this is just going to expedite the process. But remember, the financial markets, the stock market was not regulated from 1920 to 1929. The banks were, loaning, the banks were issuing IPOs and loaning the money to retail investors to go invest in the IPOs that the bank was issuing. 
right? So it was just a closed loop of the markets. Well, after the whole thing fell apart in 1929, that was when we established the, the Securities Exchange Act of 1933. We did the Investment Act of 1940. Uh, post the, uh, the dot-com crash, when Enron blew up the world, uh, we did Sarbanes-Oxley. And then after the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme in 2008, we, we uh, passed Dodd-Frank. So you know we keep passing regulation to fix bad actors, which only guarantees now that FTX is going to, to launch the SEC into regulating the cryptocurrency business. And it probably needs to be. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think most people in the crypto space welcome that, right? It's, hey, you know, like, let's, 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 let's clean it up. Let's define the rules. Um, you know, of course, they want to keep it super decentralized, which I get and, and it probably should be to, to, to be what it needs to be. Um, but you but, can't. Uh, once you regulate it, you're going to lose all that because once you start putting the guardrails around what you can do and can't do with money, you know, and going through the the issuance of trying to issue a security, you know, report on it, all that. So so now all of a sudden, the whole point of cryptocurrency was to be anonymous, right? But once it's a security, every holder has to be disclosed. Yeah, a lot of that gets out in the daylight. And look, I, yeah. I'm sure we're going to get a torrent of comments from folks on crypto telling us that, that that's the way it's going to be. That's uh, just what the I regulation is, works. Yeah. Well, I, and, and, and I've seen a lot of people in the past 48 hours say, hey, this is why you have a cold wallet. And, you know, if you don't hold your coins, you don't really own them. And, and it's the problems with the exchanges. Um and, you know, I, I, I see the logic behind all that. But what this does do is this does really damage confidence in the sector in a way that, you know, I, I think up until now, a lot of people were saying, hey, you know, crypto space goes through like an 80 percent plus correction, you know, every couple of years. And this is just that it's it's just, you know, the, the, the normal way of the game. I don't know. It, 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 with, with failures like this. And again, there's so many other players that that. FTX was invested in or had stakes in FTX, um, that F FTX was rescuing that may not be rescued anymore, that we don't know all the bodies yet that are going to, you know, uh, eventually come to the surface from this. So this this does really damage um, the desire of people to say, yeah, I'm going to put material capital in this space right now. And that's really the issue at the end of the day, right? Which is, if this is going to be a legitimate investment environment, right, where you, you can't call it a currency because it's not a currency, right? Story um, yeah. value. But sorry to interrupt. But yeah, the big, the big, the big dream of these guys is, hey, we're going to get legit enough that institutional capital is going to come in here, right? Right. Well, and that, and that's my point. Is right. that if you don't have buyers and buyers aren't convinced that they have security, look, I can buy a stock. Okay, let me let me explain this. Because this works exactly the same way. Everybody's like, well, if you have your current, if you have your cryptocurrency in your wallet, you own it, right? Okay, great. That's that's perfect. Everybody else that's just got it sitting out there, it's the same thing as owning a stock. If you have Amazon in your personal brokerage account, you don't own the stock. It's in what's called street name, right? And that's why you can just buy it and sell it, and you don't have to do a transfer of, of ownership to another entity, right? It's just in street name. And you can buy it or sell it any second, but you really don't own the stock. It's yes, it's it's identified that these shares belong in this account number X Y Z, but they're held in street name. They're not in Adam's name, right? They're in street name. So it's very much the same thing. It's it's you own, you have this digital wallet called your <laughs> called your brokerage account that you own these stocks in, and you can buy them and sell them all day long. And the big risk, of course, is that somebody fails 
and can't make delivery on stock. And this is why every major brokerage firm has excess account coverage. In right. the event of failure, in the event they go bankrupt, your assets are protected not only by SIPC insurance, but also by the excess account insurance coverage that they carry because they want bigger deposits, right? If, 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 the, if, the, if Fidelity only had SIPC insurance, nobody would deposit more than $500,000, which is what SIPC covers at right. Fidelity. But this is why they have another $100 million or $200 million policy because they want bigger deposits. They want the billionaires to deposit their assets at Fidelity. Um, so you're covered. You have some support. See, and, and this is the thing that these exchanges don't have is they don't have that collateral coverage. And, you know, it's great to be outside of, of government control. I get the beauty of that. But the beautiful thing about having some government intervention is called FIDC insur FDIC insurance for banks and SPIC, SIPC coverage. I'll spit those out. <laughs> for firms, right? Those are government programs that guarantee individual investors that if something happens, you're covered up to a certain amount of money by taxpayers. Right, right. Um, and, get, and the point about that is, is that gives people confidence to invest. Right, that, right, and, right. And confidence is the most important thing. So if you ever want Bitcoin to recover, you've got to start establishing confidence for people that they're not going to lose all their money. Right. And I think that's going to be the very interesting story coming out of this. Um, and we're right at the beginning of it. Right. So we just don't know how badly confidence is going to be impaired by, you know, the extent of the damage here. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll track it and we'll see how big it, it actually is. Um, but it's just not going to be immaterial. I mean, there's, there's a lot of big firms that had a lot of money in there. Yeah. And, and look, if you want Bitcoin to come up, you know, in price, I just have to go sell my sell my Bitcoin because every time I sell it, it goes up in price. Yeah. <laughs> OK, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of bribes to sell that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, let, let's let's move on here. Um, uh, so we, we do a recession watch every time on this uh, okay. channel here. Um, Lance, you've mentioned several times in your answers here that you still see the high probability that we're heading into some sort of recession uh, coming in uh, next year. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, Michael Pento, very comfortable saying he thinks it's going to be a particularly bad one. Um, you know, TBD, we'll see what happens. But just in tracking the the, the data, I pulled a couple of headlines uh, right before I hopped on here. Um, so uh, let's start with the housing market. Um, so uh, first off, I interviewed Wolf Richter, who um, spends a lot of time analyzing the housing market, a lot of amazing charts that he puts together. Um, so if you're interested in doing a deeper dive into the housing market that Lance and I have time for, um, I'll put up a link to the uh, interview here with Wolf. Go watch it after this one. Um, it's a great, basically real-time assessment of where things are headed. Uh, spoiler alert, Lance, he's not optimistic about <laughs> where prices are headed. Um, I, I think but, that's, just, I think, but, you know, I think that's kind of just a function of what has to happen, right? Well, exactly. And the title of the, the interview is a quote from Wolf, which is the math doesn't work uh, to yeah. have 7% mortgages and housing prices where they are right now. It just literally doesn't work, right? So we're now just waiting for the adjustment. And, and that's where I'm going with this. So uh, Redfin, which is, um, you know, a, a uh, online uh, realtor company, uh, they apparently had sort of a home flipping business. Um, so that's shuttered. No huge surprise. Uh, they're now laying off 13% of their staff. Um, but but here, here are three headlines um, from all major uh, media. So Washington Post just posted an opinion piece 
titled Homeowners Aren't Ready to Face How Much Less Their Houses Are Worth, right? So this is going back to Wolf's standoff that's going on right now. You've got the homeowners that are on strike, right? I don't want to lower my prices. Hey, everybody, let's try not to sell our homes. If your home's not selling, pull it off the market here. Let's hold strong, folks, right? Um, then you have the New York Times, which says first-time buyers face a brutal housing market. Um, there's another uh, twin uh, headline I saw, which is this is the worst time ever like in history to buy housing right now, given the unaffordability uh, right now of prices and, and, and mortgage rates. So what you're crazy. seeing here is you're, you're seeing these major media outlets basically finally get off the, the cheerleading bandwagon for housing they've been on forever and for way too long. And their sentiment has now turned. You know, they're now basically saying, okay, everybody, emperor has no clothes here, housing market, totally due for a big correction. Last headline is um, from Fortune, the US housing market is to see the second biggest correction of the post-World War II era. Okay, so yeah. you've been nodding, nodding through, I've been saying all this, and of course you were very smart, Lance, and you sold your home earlier this year, anticipating a lot of this, but it seems like it's finally happening. Now that prices haven't come down as much as we saw, but the sentiment for sure as hell has shifted. You need that to shift first. Right, and we, we talked about it before. I disagree with the, the one headline that this is the worst time ever to buy a house. Um, it, it's, it, it is at the moment, right? But high interest rates are actually the best time to buy the market. And, and so, you know, we talked about this before. If I, if, and I, I'm hoping that, I, I'm hoping the Fed will keep rates where they are. And I'm hoping we can, I can get a seven, 8% mortgage um, over the course of the next year or so, but I need prices to come down. But right? you're on a home that's 50% less than it is right now. Exactly, right? So I get, I, I pay, yeah, I get a mortgage at 7%. It's terrible, but I get a house at a discount and then I refi the house when rates come back down again. Right? Exactly. But if you wait till rates get to zero again or wherever, prices are going to be too high. And that's the worst time to buy. The worst time to buy a house was two years ago, right? That was the worst time to buy a house. When Redfin gets into flipping houses, that's a that's a telltale. We even said this back then. We said this is a telltale sign we are near a housing top. Because when you start seeing how you know home flipping shows on television and everybody's flipping houses, that it, it just and people are quitting their jobs to become real estate agents. Right. I can't tell you how many of my friends quit their job to be real estate agents. They are regretting that decision. <laughs> but you know, it's just that's what happened back in 2007. I mean, it's just it was just a repeat of what we saw back then. But look, here's two things. One, you know, homeowners may be on a buyer strike right now, but they won't be for long. We talked about before, you know, yeah, what happens they're going to lose the standoff. Yeah, yeah, because eventually you're going to say, I just can't afford to lose any more value in my house, and I need to move. I, I, I was the reason I was selling my house was to move for some reason, right? Uh, and so eventually they're going to give in and sell it for whatever they can sell it for, just trying to maintain whatever bit of value I have. I feel sorry for all the the millennials. And, and Gen Zers that ran out with their STEMI checks and bought houses over the last couple of years, they're going to be so underwater, they're not going to get out of it for a long time. That's already beginning to start. And there's an article, I talked about this last week, um, something like, so the, the, major, like, the majority of buyers over the past, of 2021, at least, yeah. um, and, and first half of this year were millennials. And it's something like over 70% of them regret the decision. Yeah, they were buying houses without even looking at them. Because everybody, right. the media, the media told them, "Oh, you got to be a homeowner, right?" Or do due diligence. Home. Oh, yeah, I don't want to get priced out because prices are going higher. Yeah, or hey, if they, I don't get this right now, it's someone else is going to snap it up. Yeah, they were they were buying houses unseen with no inspection. I mean, those are the first two rules of house buying you should never right. 
right? I mean, you get an inspection and you go look at the house. But again, you know, this is, but this goes back to what we said about stimulus, right? It just creates all kinds of bad habits. Right. Okay. So just to track where we are though, the, the, the national sentiment has now shifted, which yep. again, like I said, you know, to, for, for, for sort of market cycles to shift, sentiment has to shift first. And that definitely has happened. And to your point, Lance, it, it is the worst time to buy a house in the sense of you've got the highest prices and the highest debt costs right now. Um, but in your arc, you're right. This is actually, it's not, but it's not the best time yet either, right? What we're, what we're looking for is for prices to correct, hopefully before, if, if someone's aspiring to be a homeowner here, hopefully before um, the, the mortgage rates start coming down materially, that's when you get in. And then, as you said, um, as mortgage rates come down, then you just refi. And so you get yourself over the arc of this, the, the, the better value house at the lower price or lower cost mortgage. But if you're looking to buy a house, and this is what my wife and I are doing right now, we've identified multiple areas that we're willing to live, right? And, and you can't, you know, the problem that people, mis the, the mistake that people make when they want to buy a house is they identify a house. I want to buy that house, right? Don't do that. Find an area that you want to live in and find multiple houses that you want to live in so that you have choices to work with. So we're, we're looking right now and say, we want to live in this area, this area, this area, this area, and we're identifying houses. And we're watching those prices come down. Now, those houses, we're not going to buy. We're not going to buy any of those houses because they're still too expensive. But as those houses start coming up on the markets, we'll find the house at the right price that we'll eventually buy. We'll find the guy that, and again, it's not going to be the perfect house. It's not going to have, you know, the perfect layout with the perfect colors and all that. That's all fixable, right? What we're going to find is the perfect deal. We're going to find a guy that's stressed out, lost his job because of the recession, can't afford his mortgage, willing to dump the house really cheap. That's the house we'll buy. And then we'll fix it up. All right. Um, Okay, I'm, we're going to talk a lot more about housing as this whole thing unfolds. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there's there's a science to buying houses. You just have to work it. Yeah. Um, all right. So the last part on this recession part is um, uh, actually two last parts. Um, so one is uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the layoffs at Meta slash Facebook. Um, they're, they're pretty material. I think it's like, um, you know, 11,000 workers uh, just got their their pink slips. Um, and I, I wanted just to, to read this one quote from the article here. Um, he, this was an anonymous employee that was just interviewed in this article. Um, I didn't think these layoffs would be to the scale that they are or that I would be affected. Um, but by 8.45 a.m., uh, the morning of the layoffs, this woman was locked out of her computer with access only to her work email and basically told, hey, you're done, Right. Um, this is one of the reasons why you and I keep hammering on about the layoff risk is it's going to have impacts in the economy. It's going to have impacts in the financial markets. Yes, but it's really going to impact a lot of people's lives. Right. And so we just want to make sure that people are aware of the potential for what may be coming. And for those that are, you know, work for a paycheck, um, that you are doing whatever pre-gaming you can now, uh, for the potential that you might get surprised by one of these things, you know, by her admission here, this woman didn't think she was going to be, you know, one of the victims of this. That's she was right. safe, well, but she wasn't. Yeah, you know, two th two things you need to be doing is look, evaluate your position. Um, we've talked about this before. You know, are you replaceable? Uh, and you know, are you are you in a job? Now, every everybody wants to believe that you know I'm irreplaceable. 
right? I, you know, I own my own business. I'm irreplaceable, right? So that's how you know you're, if you own your own shop, you're irreplaceable. If you work for somebody else, you are replaceable. The question is, is how invaluable are you to the company? And that's the thing you want to evaluate. So if you think, if you look at yourself and go, you know what? I could be replaced by a computer or by Joe over here who does the exact same job I do. You know, start thinking about, you know, brush up the resume. Doesn't mean you're going doesn't mean you're going to lose your job, but be prepared, right? Brush up the resume, start talking to some contacts, start, you know, start reaching out to friends while you're still employed, right? Um, start saving up some money in the bank just in case. You know, it's a recession when your neighbor gets fired, it's a depression when you lose your job, right? So you know, just this is the time to really evaluate your personal situation and say, look, I need to be prepared for what could happen because it can have very damaging financial effects to your family. Well, absolutely. And I would actually argue, Lance, that that nobody is irreplaceable because yeah. there is a depth of, of, of cut that, you know, will take That's anybody fun. out, even you, the owner. There yeah, is right. There you go out of business. There is a bankruptcy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, that's, and, that's, yeah, Elon Musk just said that Twitter could file for bankruptcy. So, yeah, exactly. So, if you're one of the remaining fifty, you're not still safe, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, so, and look, and look I, I think Meta. This is maybe the first round for Meta. We may see another another big round of cuts at some point. I would say I'd be shocked if this is only the first round. And, and I say this having gone through a number of tech layoffs back, you know, in my career in Silicon Valley. Um, I kind of know how this playbook works, um, and you know, they they never cut nearly enough at the beginning. Um, and you're always shedding, you know, the easy, the easy way early, right? Um, but, you know, it becomes, it's become progressive if indeed the, the recession's as big as we, we think it's going to be. And of course, these, these advertising supported businesses get really crushed in recessions because it's ad budgets that are the first thing to go in corporate America when corporate America is tightening its, its belts here. So to the points that you just made, Lance, I'm just going to reiterate to folks, if you haven't yet looked at it, uh, go get the um, our free layoff guide here uh, that we put together at Wealthy on that basically is a bunch of steps that you can take today, many of the kind that, that Lance was just mentioning um, in advance of something happening, but it also has the steps that you should take immediately if you find that you get you know surprised by walking to work one day and, and find out you're uh, a casualty of a reduction in force. Just go to wealthion.com slash layoffs. You download that, that free resource. Um, all right, so... We're about to get to your trades real quick. Three more headlines, because um, I just want to talk about uh, probability of recession here. Again, these are three major uh, media outlets. Wall Street Journal, UK economy shrank in the third quarter, sliding towards recession, right? So the UK con economy is in contraction in the third quarter, unlike the US. Bloomberg, EU says recession is here and inflation shock will linger on. So it's not just a UK problem. All of Europe is in recession. And then Reuters. Um, Biden says we're, quote, not anywhere near a recession right now. Uh, and I'm not making this a partisan point, folks. I'm just trying to say, as Lance and I have said many times, um, you really have to do your own homework uh, in the type of environment that we're in right now because the institutions and and you know figureheads that are running the show here are very often not telling us the straight skinny because they don't want to make it a fait accompli, right? That's why Jerome Powell isn't using the words, hey, I'm causing a recession, folks, to bring 
uh, demand down because he knows if he does that, then everybody's going to stop their spending and he's going to make a bigger recession than he wants. Right. I think Biden's just trying to be the cheerleader the president always is trying to be. Um, and the important thing is, you know, the reason why I'm hammering on this is, you know, either they're looking in the, you know, lagging rearview data like the Fed, or they're deliberately not telling us what's going on here. And so if you just listen to the headlines, oftentimes that's a recipe for getting caught by surprise that what might be happening here. So I just kind of bring up that last one to show, yeah, hey, they're, the weatherman's still saying, still selling sunny skies, even though, you know, we're seeing thunder and lightning out the window. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And again, just just to recap, you know, look, it's it's hard to imagine a scenario where we don't have a recession next year. Um, it just, you know, high, you know, the the increase in interest rates, what's happening on the you know long duration trade, what's happening with mortgage rates, what's happening with consumption, just hard to imagine we don't have a recession. The depth of the recession is is questionable. Uh, is it a little recession or is it a big one? Um, a lot of that will depend on whether or not we break something financially, um, you know, in the markets or in the credit markets in particular. Um, it also depends on if we have big surges and bankruptcies and defaults and those type of things, right? So that's that's what puts pressure on the banks. But you know, is, is there a possibility we could avoid a recession? Sure, I just think it's a very small possibility. It's a very small one, yeah. But but it is there's a possibility. I mean, if I was a bet, if you and I were in Vegas betting on you know betting on a, a you know kind of you know a show of hands, you know, you know this is you know this you're not holding a full house here. I mean, you're you're if you're betting on the recession, you may have a pair of twos hoping everybody else folds, right? And it's just it's a very small risk of winning trying to bet on the fact that it's going to be a no recession environment next year. Yeah, and I, and I think for me, you know, the issue I have with this, and again, the, every president and every you know major politician does this, which is they they, they sell the sunniest possible outcome, right? Um, you know, this is the time where you really want your leaders to be telling you, hey, you know, there's a higher chance of recession than we've had, right? And not saying it's coming, and we're doing everything we can to stave it off, but here's the time where you guys should be doing the family planning of just in case this happens, right? That's what we want. That's the type of honesty, you know, and, and useful practical guidance that we want from our leaders. We're, we're just not getting it. It's not unique well, on this one issue. No, but, but you, look, and this is every leader. Like, this doesn't matter whether this is, is conservative or democratic or, you know, male, female, whatever. When it comes to politicians, remember that, okay, the people listening to your channel right now, are what we call a high information person. In other words, they're 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 becoming educated. They're wanting information. I mean, people don't watch financial shows. I mean, it's just on any radio station, you know, financial talk shows are very low listened to items, right? And it's just nobody wants to listen to financial talks. It's boring. Um, but if people are listening to this channel, it's because a they have money to invest, or b they they're concerned about their financial situation. And they're consuming information, so they're what we call a high information person. You've got right. to. I would I would add critical thinker to that, but yes. Yeah, but that's a high information person, right? Yeah. So they, they they study, they research, they read. You've got to remember, and I'm just I don't know the exact number percentage wise, but it's a very high percentage, eighty to ninety percent of people, are what are low information voters. And if you want to know about low information voters, go to Walmart, go to Target, look at the person in front of you at checkout. Um, you know, if, if they're wearing T-shirts with F-bombs on it and flip-flops, tells you what type of person they probably are. When they looked at the mirror going out of the house, so, yeah, I look good. Um, <laughs> you know, 
But but most people are what we call low information voters, and this is what this is what um, politicians depend on is that I can tell you a line of BS and you'll believe it because it came from me and it right. came from the media. And so the media tells you, oh, when you go to the polls, vote for A, a or B person because the economy's great. It's fantastic. And the only people that don't hear that message are the people that just lost their job, can't make ends meet. Right. That thing. But outside of that, most people are not educated about policy. So when you talk about you know, this right or that right or, or this economic number or that economic number. Most people can't tell you who the vice president is. Most people can't tell you who controls the House or the Senate. Most people can't tell you the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, honestly. So it's just that that's the people that are voting, though, and that's what we call low information. So they, they take in whatever the media tells them as the case. And that's why you never hear a politician say, hey, guys, here's the problem we got to fix. And this is how we're going to have to do it. They just tell you, hey, it's great. Don't worry about it. Right, right. Um, you're you're making me think back to one of my favorite interviews I've ever done on this channel, um, which was with Robert Cialdini, um, who is the social psychologist who wrote the foundational book, um, Influence, um, which really goes through all of these different um, their, their, their principles of, of persuading how people think. Um, and, and in many ways, they, they, they're evolutionary hacks. They hack our brain wiring for, yeah. for how humans evolve. And most of the time, we don't even know it's being done to us. And, and, and appeal to authority is sort of what you were talking about there, right? Believe it because it's coming from me. And there's all sorts of ways that that gets hacked. Um, a very simple one being is, is if a doctor tells us something about that's health related, we give it a lot of weight because they're a doctor. Um, if somebody in a white lab coat and a clipboard tells us something about health. We give that a lot of weight too, almost as much weight as knowing the guy's a doctor because he just looks and exudes the yeah. attributes of a doctor, even if he's just some rando we threw a lab coat on, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're a doctor but, that's married and you tell your wife that, she still doesn't believe you because you're her husband. <laughs> <laughs> but you're making me think it'd be really fun to have, have Dr. Cialdini back on. And maybe awesome. even with you, Lance, it'd be fun yeah. for us to, to, to go back and forth. And he's a great guy. Folks, if you have any, any kind of interest in, in, in this topic, uh, I'll put up the link to the Cialdini interview here, too. Um, it, it is fascinating. Like I said, definitely one of my favorite all-time interviews I've ever done. Um, all right. So, uh, God, I could talk about that all day, too. All right, Lance. Well, look, um, let's get to your trades. Um, I'm going to I'm going to introduce what the rant was going to be. Actually, it wasn't even going to be a rant. It was actually going to be something really positive. Um, we're going to punt it to next week if folks are interested in the topic, just from a timing perspective. So why don't you give us trades and then we'll start trying to land the plane? Yeah, no worries. Uh, we did none this week, uh, actually. Um, we have been kind of positioning the portfolio for this rally uh, really about four weeks ago. Um, when this rally started, we had added to some of our tech exposure, et cetera, kind of expecting some deflationary trades. Um, we had sold Verizon a couple of weeks ago for a tax loss sell, swapped that for Comcast because we expected kind of a pickup yeah. trade in communications. Uh, we bought a little bit of financial stocks. So we bought Goldman Sachs as an example, um, you know, looking for a pickup on the financial side. All that's been working out well. And, and so over the, the course of the next few days, um, we're going to probably start selling some of our tech stocks, just taking some profits there. Uh, in some positions and just reducing risk in others, uh, let this kind of market pull back to some degree. I, I suspect in the first two weeks, again, I kind of laid out this, this game plan earlier this week on one of our three minutes uh, videos, which was 
a rally through the end of the month uh, because basically we're going, we've got no other economic data of any real big consequence. Employment's over, CPI's over, Fed's pretty much done except for speakers. Um, we're about to go into Thanksgiving holidays, which yeah. is low, low volume days. But so markets could probably drift higher um, over the next you know couple of weeks. First two weeks of December, you've got 20% of mutual funds going to make distributions. So typically you get a bit of a sell-off or some pickup in volatility first two weeks. We get a pullback. I try to probably want to buy that a little bit, uh, maybe add to some growth stocks um, for that year-end rally because a lot of big mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera, underweight tech in particular and discretionary and communications. And they're going to have to get those positions on their books by year-end to balance their, their, their holdings. So you kind of get that, that end, of the, end of the year kind of window dressing rally. But then after that, I'm going to reduce exposure probably to 30% of the portfolio going into the new year. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So we'll let you update on uh, uh, about that as we get closer to it. Um, so real quick, um, yeah, game, game, game plans are great until they fall apart. So. Well, exactly, exactly. And that was actually something I was going to talk about too. I um, uh, so I've started taking up boxing lessons as as I think you and I've chatted a little bit. I don't know if I've talked about it on this program yet. Yeah. Um, but once a week I go and I, I've, I've for past couple months I've had this guy, you know, teaching me the basics of it. And 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 up until this week. You know, it was all footwork and how to throw the punches and stuff like that. And I'm still like in kindergarten in boxing. I mean, I'm I'm still miserable uh, in terms of my my form and 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 whatnot. Um, uh, but this week was the first week where we put on headgear, and he instead of catching my throws, had mitts on and was hitting me back. And I got to tell you completely different yeah. <laughs> you know, like you kind of think you're getting the hang of it and whatever as you're throwing punches and he's complimenting you you know when he's actually in the ring throwing punches back at you everything has gone out of your mind and you're just in survival mode i mean it's it's yeah. it is totally different so yeah. to your point you know you, you have a plan and then as soon as you encounter the enemy or as mike tyson said until, until you get punched in the mouth you know then everything just goes out the window yeah, yeah when, I, the, when i was growing up fighting i mean that was always the thing in my 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 Coaches would always say, "It's like it's all fine and dandy to punch in a bag until somebody punches you back, right?" Oh yeah, yeah. That's, it, that's you know, it's it's most incredible thing. But yeah, pretty fun. I'm I'm glad you did that. But you know, you know how I learned how to fight was uh, when we were growing up and we were pretty poor, and so my parents bought us a pair. Of, my brother and I bought us a pair of boxing gloves, but they only bought us one pair. So he was older, so we always took the right glove, and he always gave me the left glove and beat the crap out of me. So. <laughs> We, we, so we, we, that's how I learned to fight. We, we may have similar <laughs> stories. So yeah, I, I kind of learned sort of a scrappy fighting technique um, as, at a young age, because I had an older brother and he was four years older than me. Sounds like yours, right? So you knew every fight you were going to lose, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest, I think, valuable learnings I had on this is when you're in an outsized match like that, your job is just to make the fight too painful to be worth having. Yeah. Right. You just look him in the eye and say, "Okay, look, you're going to win this fight, but you're going to limp away from it. Do you really want to have it? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And look, honestly, I think that's what made me such a good fighter later on is just, you know, him beating the crap out of me. I was so used to getting hit that, you know, it it was really easy to start getting in the ring and fighting people with two gloves. Right. So, (laughs) you know, it became a fair match at that point. Well, I don't know if I'm ever going to step in the ring with somebody. Um, We'll we'll see. Um, I'm going to fly out. I'll come up fly on sea and I'll punch you in the face. Just okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, folks. So, so when you send me with two black eyes in here, you're going to know that Lance paid a visit. Um, but I did just want to underscore the analogy that, uh, to your point, which is, um, you know, if and this is this is obviously why I tell people to work with a financial advisor as often as I do, 
is um, it's one thing to um, you know listen and get good ideas and think, oh, I might do that myself, right? Um, it is a whole other thing to actually be able to you know surf all the craziness that the volatility and the changes and the unexpected news that's going on in these markets. Uh, to have to react to the things that don't make sense, like the giant mindless robot, you know, stuff that we were talking about, um, the massive curveballs that just come from, you know, out of nowhere. We we mentioned a whole bunch this time around, uh, and then of course all the emotions that drive us to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And actually, going back to Cialdini, that's what he talks about. And that, that's his area of expertise, which is in many ways, you know, our evolutionary wiring is is the antithesis of what you want driving you. Uh, as an investor, right? Because it, it, we 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 react to things, and we we totally we're bad judgers of risk. Uh, and of course, you know, to be a good investor, you you have to know probabilities really well, and you have to be dispassionate, right? So, um, so anyways, um, uh, glad I at least made the, the the connection there. All right. So, um, speaking of which, um, we have uh, a event coming up. Uh, folks will mostly most folks will be watching this this weekend. Coming up Monday, immediately following this weekend, the 14th, um, the other financial advisors that we often have on this channel, the guys at New Harbor Financial, they're offering a free webinar on um, using options as a hedging tool, not as a speculative tool, but as a hedging tool to protect downside risk in your portfolio. And just like Lance and his team did a retirement planning one, an excellent retirement planning one uh, a few months back, um, we're offering this one. Um, it's uh, it's going to be live starting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Monday, November 14th. Uh, don't worry if you miss it live. Uh, it's going to instantly be just a replay video after that um, to, to either watch the live event at 7 p.m. or to catch it afterwards. Just go to Wealthion.com slash options hedging. Um, and also, I mentioned the amazing uh, retirement planning one that Lance and his crew did. If you didn't watch that one and care about your retirement, which I think everybody viewing this does, Go to Wealthion.com slash retirement planning, and you'll get the replay video from that one, too. Um, all right, Lance, in, in just winding this down, um, uh, the topic I wanted to talk about was um, I was in San Francisco yesterday because I was sort of fulfilling a promise I made to myself over 10 years ago when I was making my transition from what I'd been doing professionally for the oh, whole beginning great. of my life. I thought it was going to change your pronouns. So, oh, yeah, no, it's not a pronoun change, but it was it was really a life purpose change. I mean, really, this is probably the most important thing I ever did in my life was was to finally say, you know what, I'm just not happy in the professional career path that I'm on. And I was turning 40 and really hearing the clock tick and, and having that sort of is this all it's going to be, you know, question um, loudly echoing in my mind. And I ended up, uh, I can tell the story in more depth, folks are interested, maybe when we talk about this next week, but it ended up very uncharacteristically for me, because I'm pretty risk averse, cutting the cord and, and giving notice when I was working at Yahoo and I was VP of marketing for North America, I had a, had a quote, really good job, um, but it was just not making the type of difference I wanted to make in the world. And I gave notice without knowing what I was going to do next. And I, I told myself, look, you can't screw this up. You've really got to figure it out now. You've, you've just cut the cord. You've, you, you've, you've cut the, you know, cords to your parachute here. You got to figure out where you're going to land. And, um, went on a, a pretty intensive journey of self-discovery for a number of months, really taking every test known to man, uh, in terms of, you know, 
your passions, your personality, your skill sets, I mean, all that type of stuff. I worked with a, a number of uh, executive coaches and uh, a lot to talk about that process. But there was one thing I did during that that really stuck with me. And it was this test called the Johnson O'Connor Aptitudes Test. And it's a phenomenal uh, test that's been running for over a hundred years. Uh, over a million people have taken it over a hundred years. It's six hours worth of testing and it reports out your personal superpowers. Like basically, Lance, these are the things that you are naturally better at than most other people in the world. It's just how you're wired as an individual. And you look like the 6% of people that have come through this and the people who look like you tend to outperform in these areas and they need to be exercising these elements of themselves either in their work or in their personal lives to feel fulfilled. And um, long story short, it was one of the most useful things for me in my journey. And so I said, when I took it, man, I really can't wait for my daughters who were very young at the time to take this. So uh, the first of my daughters took hers yesterday and we're about to get the readout of it like 10 minutes after we log off here, Lance. So I'm going to be really curious to hear what, what, what she heard. Um, but what's so great about this is, is these things, um, they don't change for the, your life. Um, th this testing service says, look, you can, you can retake the test if you want to. I believe they even let you do it for free, but they don't encourage you to do it because they say most cases when we test somebody it can be five, 10, 30 years later, their scores don't change because kind of who you're, who you are in terms of your wiring gets locked in by around the time of your mid-teens. So uh, anyways, long story short, um, this is one of the most useful thing I think parents can give their children this sort of self-knowledge to then navigate by in the rest of their lives. And one bit of data point, and then I'll shut up about it for now. Um, if you take this test as a teenager, um, you know, later stage teenager, before you go to college, your likelihood of switching majors in college drops by 70% because you're making such a better fit decision right out of the gate. And of course you can, that helps not just, you know, what you major in in college, but should I even go to college? And okay, uh, what, what do I do when I go out of college, right? What industries do I wanna go into? What, what work do I wanna do? Um, these are, I call them sort of compass points that you can use to more intelligently navigate the rest of your life. So I'll stop gushing about it, I'm guessing we're going to have some people in the comments of this video who have taken the Johnson O'Connor test. So you guys, folks, please chime in. Let folks know your experience on this so they're just not hearing my, uh, you know, potentially singularly biased point of view. Um, but anyways, there's a lot more to talk about this in terms of developing this kind of self-understanding, both in our kids, but also in ourselves. I, th I think every 50-year-old, you know, should take this test, too. Um and uh, if there is more interest in this, I, I sense this is a topic that you and I can can really elaborate on next week, Lance, because it's this type of investment. We talk about like investing in your health and you know, some other key areas. This type of investment in self-understanding uh, is, I think, the greatest catalyzer to personal happiness, right? To getting you to a place in, in, in life where you're really happy and fulfilled. And, and even if the money doesn't come the way you hope it will, you're waking up every day with the purpose of knowing that you're living sort of in accordance for what you were made to do. So anyways, I'll, 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 I'll hand the baton here to you in closing here, but any reaction you have to this? No, I, look, anything that you can do like that, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great tool. I've done a lot. I haven't done that test. I've taken a lot of other personality tests as well, which is yeah. kind of how I wound up where I am. But so it's kind of, the, it okay. it's kind of the same drivers, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, anything that you can start to determine about, you know, 
what you're good at. And more importantly, you know, there's the old saying is like, you know, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. If you find out what you're good at, you'll love doing it. Well, exactly. And and you'll likely outperform, right? And that's yeah. the whole history of the Johnson O'Connor test, which I'll, I'll talk, if, again, if folks are interested, let us know in the comment section. We'll talk about this more next week. But this whole thing was created. I'll, I'll, I'll tell this 60-second story in the end. It was created by GE over 100 years ago, where that was back in the days where they hired people out of college, and then you worked your entire career at GE, right? And they said, you know what? Everybody's kind of better at certain things than, than other people. If we could figure out what people's sort of personal superpowers are and, and know that at the beginning of their career, we could design a career for, for them here where we're playing to their innate natural strengths. And they're going to be happy because they're going to be outperforming and they're going to be getting you know rewarded for that. And they're going to be doing what comes to them naturally and what they like to do. So the logic made total sense. They just didn't have the test. So they went and found this researcher, a guy named Johnson O'Connor, and said, look, we need you to come up with this personal superpowers test. So he called them aptitudes. Uh, he created the test. It worked so well that GE said, you know, we got to share this with the world. And it's been running as a nonprofit ever since, which is why I said it's been running for over a century and they've had over a million people go through it. So it's incredibly statistical. There's really nothing left for interpretation here. It's just, hey, you know, we've, we're letting the law of large numbers really, you know, reveal to you who you really are. Um, so anyways, super very interesting. Cool. Yeah, very neat. All right. Sorry to go on so much about that, folks. You can tell I'm clearly passionate about it. Um, all right. Well, look, in um, in wrapping things up here, um, uh, Lance, I, I, I strongly suspect that you expect, you know, some shockwaves uh, from this week to ripple into next in terms of what happens with asset prices, certainly what happens with the contagion from uh, FTX and whatnot, um, whatever those are. We'll be tracking them here together and making sense of them for folks. Um, and just a reminder, folks, I've mentioned several times already here um, why we recommend working with a financial advisor. Um, if you've got a good one, great, stick with them. Um, but if you want a second opinion from one that really understands all the macro issues that Lance and I have talked about here, um, perhaps even talking to Lance and his firm at uh, Real Investment Advisors themselves, uh, just go to Wealthion.com and set yourself up a free consultation with them. Um, doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer. They'll hear your personal financial story. They'll tell you what they think you should do. You can go off and do it with yourself if you want. You can do it with your existing advisor, or you can keep talking to these guys if you like the conversation. Um, and with that said, folks, thanks for hanging with us for yet another uh, very detailed weekly market recap. Um, if you could do us a favor, please help support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Thanks so much, Lance. Really look forward to seeing you here next week. All right. See you then. All right, everybody else. Thanks so much for watching.